glad you're here. Thank you so much for uh, coming this morning. It's good to be together as one body. This is our chance to come together once a week and bring the whole body together as one, and we sing our praises to God as one, and we learn from God, we hear from God's word as one. This is our chance to come together as one body every single week, and uh, I hope we never take that for granted. This is a very, a very special and important time for us every single week, and we love it, love having you here. We're a 6-8 church. That comes from a verse in the Bible, Micah 6-8. And we have decided to, to pursue that as a church. The verse goes like this on the bold. If you want to join me and say it out loud and proud, we'd love to have you. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And so we want to be a church of disciples, making disciple makers who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. One way you can help us do justice, you may have seen the picture in our, in our Facebook group this week. If you're not in our Facebook group, you can go to Facebook, do a search uh, for 6-8 Community Group, and we'll add you to that. Love to have you join that. But we posted a picture, Becky posted a picture of the socks, 103 pairs of socks donated this last week. So yeah, you can give that a round of applause. So every time somebody comes and checks that first time or second time box on the connection card and the card in front of you or the seat back that you're sitting in, uh, we donate a pair of socks to Northwest Children's Outreach in your honor just for filling out that card. So by doing that, you help us do justice in our community and it's cold and wet. It's a good time to have socks. So thank you for doing that. Um, but we, we have um, a lot of stuff that we do as a church, and there's no way I can go over all of it. The best way to find out is going to our website, 68church.com, and you can get the rundown of all the ministries. We have a mom's ministry, we have a men's ministry, we have a women's ministry, we have a youth ministry, we have a children's ministry, we have a food pantry. Our big ministry that we do here is the food pantry. We have the community garden that goes along with that, and a lot of great things we're doing here as a church. So um, if you have questions, if you're wondering where can I plug in, what is, a, what is the next step for me, then I encourage you to talk to me. Jim is sitting in the back, there's Becky sitting here at the table, um, Rob right down here, anyone else? Is, Okay, who? Shannon. Shannon over here. If you have questions, just encourage you to talk to one of us after the service, and we'll do our best to uh, plug you in, make the connection you're looking for. One announcement, though, is next Sunday, Sunday afternoon, October 25th, I, last week I mentioned this, but I didn't give a date and a time. So it's next Sunday, October 25th, we're having our first green event. We're having what we call green events, 6-8 green events. You notice our logo's green, green, green events um, that, that we are using to, to kind of give an opportunity for you to invite someone to that is just a low, uh, low threat kind of event. Now, so there's not gonna be, um, not gonna be doing you know, preaching and worship and stuff like that at these events. These are events to get people who don't know Christ together with those who do know Christ and see that Christians aren't stodgy, stuck up, snotty, arrogant people that don't know how to have fun, that we like to get together and have a good time. So we're, we're kind of putting on these events so that you can invite your friends to them and they can just rub shoulders. It's like the block party and Priester and some of those things. We're, we're not going to, we're not gonna get out a megaphone and you know, just preach the gospel, hellfire and brimstone, and pound the pulpit and do a visual illustration with a bonfire and all that stuff. Uh, we just want you to invite your friends and just make them feel welcome and we'll come out and we'll have hot dogs and we will have a bonfire, but there will not be a visual illustration. We'll be throwing anybody in it, I promise, except for maybe Tim. <laughs> but he's, he's sitting down here in the front, so I gotta pick on him. Um, bonfire, pumpkin launching, and a hayride, and just gonna have a fun time. So next Sunday, four o'clock, and we will have maps available next Sunday morning for you to be able to take because it is out a little ways. You go to Woodland and then you go east. Bring your own pumpkin. So if you want to launch a pumpkin, you got to bring a pumpkin to launch. Um, yeah, not too big. That's a good question. Um, you know, probably, you know, like a six or eight pounder. Six, eight, six or eight pounder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, but not, not too much bigger than that because of the way the thing's gonna work. So, and then, uh, and then some smaller pumpkins too. You can just bring those little ornamental ones too and they might go further, just, just have fun with it. So, and if you have a slingshot or a potato gun or any of those kinds of things that we can use to launch other things, no children will be launched at this event, but uh, <laughs> just, just have some fun. A lot of space out where we live, and we can shoot things a long way across the field. So anyway, next Sunday, October 25th, 4 o'clock, we'd love to have you come and join us. Bring your friends, bring your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your boss, whatever, whoever you think you can get to come with you. Am I missing any other announcements? If you think I have missed one, you can text it in really quick to our phone number, 360-818-4399. 360-818-4399, something that's, if there's something important that I missed, feel free to go ahead and send that in real quick and I'll make sure we get to that. Um, and if you have questions and comments during the sermon, you can send them to that number as well, something you wanna work in. Well, we're starting a new series. This is our, our fifth module in the Disciples Project. We started this last fall, and we've gone through kind of this long journey. All of them are online if you wanna go get caught up and would encourage you to do that, just kind of see the journey we're coming on. We started last fall with understanding redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? And then we moved into um, doing, or the church was the next one, and then do justice, and love mercy was the last one we did, and now we're into walking humbly. And as we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to take it seriously. Who do you think you are? Who do you, who do you think you are? How dare you? No, I'm just kidding. It's not that kind of who do you think you are. Kind of felt like that. A child of God. Who do you think you are? If you have an answer to that you want me to read, you can text that in, 360-818-4399. Who do you think you are? When you think of yourself, when you stop for a minute and just imagine, when, when you look at yourself in the mirror or when you're thinking about me, who is it that comes to mind? Who do you think you are? How do you define yourself? What are the terms for who you are? We started way back talking about this and understanding redemption and, and your value and your identity. My father's daughter or son, in, I don't know what that means, just the letter N. You have to give me a little more definition than that. Who do you think you are? Oh. Or the, the N was for the son, my father's daughter or son, S-O, and then they left off the N. All right. Yeah, thank you for the clarification. I figured that out. Who do you think you are? When you think of yourself, who, who comes to mind? Who is the me that you see? Weak in myself, but hoping to be strong in him. That's a good answer. Who do you think you are? Um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things we use to define us. Tim just sent another blank one. Just, see, that's why we're going to throw him in the fire, just because he does stuff like that. <laughs> While you're thinking of your answers, I want, I want to ask another couple of questions. Have you ever been around um, a narcissistic person or someone who's maybe really arrogant, maybe really full of themselves, someone where like the whole world revolves around them and, um, and when, that, when that gets threatened a little bit, yes, Y-U-S-S, I don't know what that one means. Now I think it's just like what, uh, what can I say to throw the pastor off? <laughs> Have you ever been around somebody who is just so full of themselves that, that everything has to revolve around them? We've talked a lot about this, this idea, but um, if, there is, if there's something that comes in contact with you know, the world that they've kind of set up around to, to build them up and make them feel good about themselves, and then all of a sudden that becomes a threat, so that has to be dealt with and taken down. Has anyone dealt with someone like that? Have you worked with someone like that? Maybe you live with, lived, I won't, I'm not gonna put anybody on the spot right now, lived 
have lived, let's say that, have lived with someone like that at some point in your life. It could be current, it could be past. Someone who has to make everything revolve around them. I have had the distinct privilege of working with some of these people in my life. Um, And it has been a challenge. It has been a struggle. In fact, it has been one of the most difficult things that I have ever experienced, I've ever had to walk through. Walking with somebody who's insecure and knowing that there's a, an immense insecurity, and I was talking to someone else who was kind of helping me, helping me through the situation, and, and he gave me the illustration. It's like, you know, you, know you, may be, you may be walking with this person, but in a lot of ways, you're the grown-up, and you're walking with a, a little child who feels insecure, and they have to do things to puff up their own identity. They have to do things to make themselves feel better about themselves. But why is it that it seems that the most proud, the most even maybe confident people that, that we know, they come across with this confidence and bravado, are also the most insecure people around us? Why is it that those who, who walk with pride and try to intimidate those around us are also the ones who are the most insecure? And then on the flip side, why is it that those who seem to be the most secure are also the most humble. I'm sure you can probably think of a lot of examples of this in your life. The people who, who you know who are humble are usually some of the most secure people around. They don't care what other people think of them. They don't care how you look at them. They don't care what you see when you see them. They are secure in their identity, and they walk humbly in it. They're not walking with hubris and pride. Why does this seem to be the case? It would seem like if you know your identity and if you know who you are, that that would make you proud, and if you didn't know your identity and you didn't know who you are, that would make you humble, but it's the other way around in our world. Why is that? A lot of my life, I have, uh, I have been underestimated. Somebody sent in, because they don't know who they are in God, that's why people do that, that's a good response. Who are you, a sinner that has been saved by grace through Jesus Christ? I have had uh, a lot of my life been underestimated. I have, I have had, um, it seems like maybe, maybe this isn't just my story, maybe this is the story of a lot of people in here, but I have dealt with a lot of people that, I've, that are narcissistic that have seem to need to impose their will on me or put me in my place to make themselves feel better. I was thinking about that this morning, even for some reason dreaming about it last night. Um, there's just been a lot of situations that I've been in in my life where, where people um, didn't recognize maybe the talent that I have or the skill that I have or, or just you know who I am and what I have to offer. And so, they would belittle me, they would put me down, uh, they would, they would uh, come up with mechanisms for, for making, me, making sure that I'm constantly in my place, uh, changing my name and saying my name wrong and you know, kind of making it a joke or uh, you know, saying that I uh, am overweight. You know, when I was a kid, I remember uh, people making fun of me for, for eating a lot, as a lot of kids do when they're going through growth, growth stages, but then being made fun of for that and kind of the wounds that that stuck with me through life, uh, have dealt with, I think, a lot, of, a lot of arrogant, proud people who have this need to put others around them down so that they feel better about themselves. And I don't know if you've walked through that, I don't know if you've felt that way, um, but I have personally dealt with that and I know how that leaves you feeling. I know how that leaves you when you walk through something like that. It's not until I've gotten into my adult years that I've been able to see through a little bit of that and to start to see, well, that's, that's not someone putting me down, but that's someone who struggles with their own identity and they need to put others down to feel better about themselves. They struggle with some kind of insecurity and so they walk this way so that they can make themselves feel better. But as we get into talking about humility and walking humbly with our God, um, I wanted to really talk about who we are. Uh, we sing that song as we're loved by the Father. God is a good Father, and we have all had fathers who lived imperfect lives. Even the best fathers on earth have, have lived imperfectly, 
But our Father, our Heavenly Father, is a good Father, and who we are is defined by who God says that we are. And we need to go to what God says when we come to our identity. We need to go to what the Scripture says when it comes to our identity and how we define ourselves and not allow those who are insecure around us to define us. If you're struggling this morning under the weight of somebody's definition of you, then I want to help build you up in Christ and help you see that Jesus is the one that defines us when we put our faith in him. So if you're struggling this morning to walk humbly because you've been put down, then I want you to hear from God's word this morning. If you're struggling this morning to walk humbly because you are proud and arrogant, then I want you to hear from God's word this morning who we are, where we are, and then let's walk humbly together. If we're struggling to walk humbly, it's probably because we are deriving our definition of ourselves from someone else. It's because we are deriving our value from what others say we are. And when we allow others to define us, then all of a sudden our performance becomes the most important thing to make sure that we are able to uh, secure our spot as the alpha dog in the group. This, this ties in very closely to humility and that the Old Testament had what they called the law and in the Old Testament you were responsible for your own righteousness. In the Old Testament as we walked, the law wasn't really designed this way but it became this thing, this list of commands that we had to keep you know, the, the 10 that we're familiar with, another 600 more that uh, we're not familiar with, and then a lot of other small, small laws that uh, were added to it that are all, that you all had to keep all of them, and they all had their own repercussions. We had this responsibility to keep the law and to live righteously, and this was our responsibility. But the problem is, when you're responsible for your own righteousness, then there is the opportunity, the possibility for this immense amount of pride to creep in, this immense amount of arrogance to creep in. And you can see this if you watch through and walk through Jesus' teaching and his dealings with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will see that there was an immense amount of pride in their religion, in their religious activities, and they derived their identity from their ability to perform with perfection the law. Now, if you read the actual law, you'll see that the lives that they were leading were not actually living up to the standard that was set place in the very beginning, but the justifications they had made over time. But when we're responsible for our own righteousness, then we become proud. proud. We can take pride in our religion. We can't walk humbly because in our minds, we have done everything to earn our current position. So when we are the ones who do all of the righteous activities, when we're the ones who do everything perfect so that we can have this mantle of righteousness that we think we have earned, then we aren't going to be humble unless it is a forced humility because we've been commanded to do so, because we have earned it, it's on us. But as new creations in Christ, our identity is not something we earn. And this is something that, that I have not taught you enough, that I have not said enough, and I want to really drill into you as much as I possibly can. As new creations in Christ, our identity is something that is placed on us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not something we earn, it is not something that we perform to achieve, it is not something that we acquire because we have done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten commands. This is not where our righteousness comes from. Our righteousness comes from being seen through Jesus Christ. Instead of seeing us for our religion or our false attempts to perform religious activities so that we can earn our righteousness, God now sees us after we put our faith in Jesus Christ and the saving work on the cross. He sees us through the perfect righteousness of his son instead of our imperfect attempts at righteousness. And we see through scripture that our righteousness, our filthy rags, our attempts at performing the perfect life come off pretty stinky. But God sent his son to die on a cross, to die in our place. This is where we start this morning, Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to pull out your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 9 with me. Uh, bear with me a little bit, trying to weave together uh, a couple ideas in this passage and... Um, 
Hopefully it'll all make sense in the end. Luke chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, you can pull out your phone and open up the Bible app. Go to Luke chapter 9 and join us there. And while you have your phone out, if you want to go ahead and check in on Facebook and let the world know you're here, this helps us get some exposure to others that may not know that we exist, and you can help us uh, spread the word just by checking in at 6-8 Church. Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 23. After this, I'm going to bounce around a little bit through Luke to try to bring this together. This is Jesus speaking, talking to his disciples. It says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If you've been around church, you've probably heard that scripture. You've heard someone talk about that. Um, I've, I've sung this song before because this was the song that, was, that existed back in the day that, that was just taken from this verse. Take up your cross. I don't know if anyone knows it. And follow Jesus. Kind of this gospel thing. And take up your cross. Had a big choir behind it. Every day. So you got to kind of use your imagination a bit. Don't be ashamed to say that you know him. Count the cost and take up your cross and follow him. And then you kind of go through these verses. What are you doing for the king? I'm not going to sing the whole thing. Have you really given everything? And, you know, kind of build up through them. I'm trying to, I should have just played, it, played the song for you. But, and then it would get to the point, you know, at the, end, at the end of the song, and the sopranos jump up to the harmony, and the altos jump up and take the tenor part, and the tenors jump way up. And so if you were singing in the choir in these songs, there was no possible way you could actually sing these parts, but you tried anyway. And we would take up our cross literally as we're singing these songs and endure the struggle but if you've been around church, you've probably heard this, this verse. And, uh, but how many of us have actually stopped and thought about what it means? How many of us have stopped and dissected it enough to really apply it to our lives? It says, whoever wants to be my disciple. And we have to stop there because our mission as a church, our mission and vision is disciples making disciple makers. And so if we're going to be disciples, which means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if we're going to follow, then we have to do what Jesus says when it says, to be my disciple, you do this. And so he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The disciples had a very different idea of what Jesus was going to come and do, what the Messiah was going to come and do. They had a vision of a king coming and setting up a kingdom, and he was going to, by force, take the kingdom. And as you take this story in the context of all of the Gospels, you will find that shortly after this, after Jesus taught this, after he fed the 5,000 and all of this stuff happened, you'll find very quickly the, the disciples fighting for position of who's going to be first in the new kingdom. The disciples did not understand what it meant to deny themselves, and as Scripture says, it was because they had not been allowed to see fully what it meant yet. But then we go through Jesus' life. Now, just stay where you are. I want to go to Luke chapter 23. I want to go to the cross. Very interesting if you start to make this comparison, if you, if you study the whole story. The beginning of this chapter, Jesus had just sent out the 12. They had gone off and done some miracles and come back. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000, an amazing miracle. If you go to John chapter 6, John 5 and 6, you will see that after he feeds the 5,000, the disciples get into the boat and they go to the other side and that's one of the times that Jesus walks on water and if you go to Mark, you'll see that Jesus had in mind, his, his intention was to just pass them by 
uh, as they were in the boat. He was just going to walk past them. That's why Mark is kind of the comedian of the bunch because that's kind of funny. Like Jesus is just going to walk on the water and walk by the disciples, say, hey, guys, what's up? And just go on to the destination, meet him at the other side. And so all of these miraculous things are happening. And um, after, in John chapter six, we pull in here that after this, then all of the people who had just eaten of the bread and the fish and had their fill, they got in their boats and they followed Jesus to the other side. They noticed that the disciples had left and Jesus wasn't in the boat. And so they didn't know for sure how Jesus got there, but they get there and they are following. And Jesus has this teaching. He says, uh, surely, you know, you didn't come here because of miracles, but you came here because you ate the bread and had your fill. And I've talked on John chapter six quite a few times. It's a very difficult teaching that we're going to leave for another day. But here we have all of these people who had heard and seen the miracles, who had eaten the bread and the fish, and they're following Jesus, John chapter nine, we'll go back to 24 a minute, just bear with me. John chapter nine, verse seven, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. John the Baptist was somebody who had done a lot of stuff before Jesus started his ministry. Others were saying that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this I hear such things about and he tried to see him. Herod wanted to see Jesus. Go to John or to Luke chapter 23, verse 8. Jesus has just been before Pilate and had been questioned by Pilate. And then in this questioning, Pilate discovers that it's not in his jurisdiction. He tries to shove the blame off to someone else to deal with Jesus. So he sends him to Herod. And he, Jesus comes to Herod. Verse eight of chapter 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. A lot of the people who followed Jesus followed him because of the signs and wonders. A lot of people who followed Jesus followed him because of what they saw Jesus do. And then in John chapter six, we see that when Jesus did the hard teaching, he said that if you're gonna come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is, which is difficult, which is hard to understand that a lot of the people turned and walked away. And it was just the disciples that remained. But Jesus didn't do anything for Herod. Herod didn't get to see any miracles, so he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate now has him again. And he goes to the crowd. He says, this man has done nothing to deserve death. Through his questioning, Pilate was able to come to the point and realize that Jesus hadn't done anything to deserve death, that he had not committed a sin that deserved to be punished by being crucified on the cross, but then the Jews that were in the crowd and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who were there, they're screaming out, away with this man, take Jesus away, release Barabbas, the sinner, the murderer to us, and take Jesus instead. Wanting to release Jesus, verse 20, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them and said, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insisted, insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. It's very interesting when you stop for a minute and this all ties together, I promise. Who was the one, who were the ones shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Who were the ones that wanted Jesus dead? Was it the religious ones who knew religion and the Old Testament and the law and all of those things, or was it the heathen who didn't know and had not believed in God? Who was the one 
that wanted Jesus' death. It was the religious ones. It was those who should have known better, but they were not able to see what was right in front of them. It was those under the law who put Jesus to death. Jesus is crucified. He's on the cross. A story that's so familiar to us. He's on the cross. There are people there watching, and people are shouting out, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Let him save himself. It's very interesting because Jesus wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save the world. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness had come over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. His flesh died, committed his spirit to the Father. We don't make much of that, but as we read through Luke, we see Luke points out several times the difference between flesh and spirit. We hear the, we hear the phrase, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. And we hear the story of Nicodemus about uh, being born again. What does it mean to be born again? Can someone go into their mother's womb and be born again? Well, no, that's flesh. You've already been born of flesh. Jesus wasn't talking about the birth, the rebirth of the flesh. He's talking about the rebirth in the spirit. Just before we get to this in, in Luke chapter 9, we go back just a little bit, and there's this miracle, a dead girl who uh, gets brought back to life. Stick with me. We're, we're going to come all together here in a minute. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, there are people crowding all around you and pressing in against you. How can you possibly know someone touched you? But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking in this situation, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Jairus was in the crowd wanting to get Jesus to come heal his daughter. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But Jesus took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Verse 55. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And Jesus told, the, told them to give her something to eat. She's hungry. Her parents were astonished, but Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. We are born and at, at, as God creates us and we're born as God is forming us in our mother's womb, we are being created as someone in God's image. We are being made to resemble God. We're being made in his image. And we've talked about how this gives us value and dignity and worth because we are made in God's image. What this, what this means is not just in our, only in our physical appearance, but that in our entire being we are made in God's image. So we are bodies then that God breathes the spirit of life into, so then we are both bodies and spirits. And as, 
as our spirit is born with our body, then we become immortal. Our, our flesh is mortal. Our flesh will die. Our, our flesh will, will die, and then we'll be given a new body. This is uh, the resurrected body. We're not going to get into that. But uh, as we come to life, we become spirits with a body. So our flesh is just the temporary part, and then our spirit is the eternal part. This is important because we need to understand what it means to take up our cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean to surrender your life on the cross? As best I can understand, as best I can put it, is that we have to put to death the struggle of our fallen flesh on a daily basis so that the spiritual, so that the redeemed spirit that God redeems us can take over our lives more and more daily. That as, as we continue, we surrender our lives on a daily basis, we're gonna put to death the struggles, the, the pool and the lure and the distractions of this world, we're going to put that to death daily and we're gonna take up the cross of the ministry God has given to us and we're going to follow Jesus Christ daily As he does that, then his spirit will continue to renew us and we will find ourselves being renewed, being made in his image, both in appearance and in spirit. See, what had happened in this crowd was that a lot of people were following Jesus for what he could do for them, not for who he could turn them into. A lot of people in the crowds were following Jesus because they saw the miracles, they saw the signs and wonders, they maybe had their own illness, they had their own struggle, they had their own pursuit that they needed to be changed, and so they're following Jesus with the hope that Jesus, this miracle worker, this guy who has raised the dead, literally at this point, who has fed 5,000 people plus women and children, who has healed the sick and who has made the lame walk and who has healed the blind and made the deaf and the mute so they could speak and hear this, this amazing person walking the planet. They, they had their own thing or they knew someone who had their thing. They wanted to see Jesus perform and heal. They were following for the signs and wonders. They were following for what Jesus could do for them, not for who Jesus could change them into, redeem them to. It's like in, in Luke chapter nine, we're hearing Jesus talk, says, many of you followed me from place to place waiting for he- healing and miracles. You're seeking the wrong thing. Yes, I provide healing and miracles to those in need. Those are signs of God's power as he brings his kingdom to earth through me. But that's not where this earthly ministry leads. The final road you travel as you follow me leads to a criminal's cross not a gold cross on the chain that enhances the beauty of the wearer, not a piece of art in a museum that enhances the reputation of the artist or brings awe to a young art student, not a massive cross atop a cathedral, not a decorative cross in a sanctuary that marks off a holy place. This cross is among the world's most cruelest instruments of torture. You cannot wear this cross. You must bear it. Crowds followed Jesus because they sought miracles and healing and food. They saw him as the man of God who had come to save the nation and to relieve their physical and material needs. Jesus shocked them by defining Messiah in terms of suffering, not ruling. He extended the shock when he said his disciples must join him in suffering. And as we see, the disciples suffered greatly. He defined the suffering in terms of bearing a cross This looked forward to the moment when a Roman official would sentence Jesus to death. We just looked at that, the most horrible death imaginable, being nailed in public view to a cross until he suffocated to death. Part of that punishment was having to carry the cross through the public roadways to the crucifixion site, enduring the ultimate humiliation. He set two options before his disciples. Make earthly life the most important thing and lose everything you dreamed of and accomplished or make Christ's kingdom the most important thing in life and eventually gain true life. 
make Christ's kingdom paramount in life. That means giving up material goods and becoming dependent on good to supply all daily needs. It meant going on mission when some people would reject them. It meant surrendering all earthly ties and relationships and responsibilities in light of Jesus' call to discipleship. This is what it means to take up your cross daily and follow him. It meant knowing that the ultimate earthly destination was not a throne or an executive office or a military command. The ultimate earthly destination for Jesus and his committed followers is rejection by earthly authorities. It's total humiliation. It's capital punishment. It's death. And each day was a day further along on Jesus' road and on the disciples' road to Calvary. The church today, a lot of us want to kind of shove this story back into history and leave it back there where it's, where it's a story we can look back on and it doesn't bother us too much. We want to kind of leave it there and let it be and then walk forward from it and kind of live our lives how we want to live. We want to, we want to modify the story. We want to change the story to meet with the realities of this modern life that we live. We want to, well, we want to delay it until we're able and ready to meet the demands and We just don't want to deal with it, and this is exactly, this is precisely what Jesus was talking about in this passage. The world does not make the most radical claim on our life. It is Jesus who makes the most radical claim on our lives. Make a decision now, self or Christ, earthly success or Christ's cross-bearing mission. and then walk down the road you take knowing you have rejected the other. This is Jesus' definition of self-denial in favor of following Jesus on mission. Why is it so important that we walk humbly with our God? Because Jesus himself was humiliated. Jesus himself, as we're going to talk about later in this series in Philippians chapter two, who was in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, Jesus knew that he was God, that he had all the authority and the power of God, and he could have, if he was a fallen human like us, used his own godness to be his own advantage, to be to his own good. Instead, what does it say? It says, he endured death. He was humiliated. He endured the death on the cross. Our identity is not in our religion and our ability to perform righteous acts. Our identity is in the righteousness that we receive because of this wonderful gift of God, who though he was God, he, he, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Are we going to be humbled and become obedient to death? Or are we going to continue to go after all this life has to offer? What drives your pursuit of Christ? What is driving you this morning as you go after Jesus, as you go after the cross? Is it what Jesus can do for you? Or is it who he wants to make you? What's driving you? Is it, is it what you can get from God or is it the, the total renovation, the total redemption, the total restoration of who I am in Christ? What is driving you? Is it, is it the signs and wonders and hoping that if you come to Christ, he's going to heal this, he's going to fix this thing in my life, he's going to make me rich beyond my wildest dreams, he's going to give me power and authority? What is driving your pursuit of Christ? Are you going after Christ because you want the things or because you want the life that he has to offer? I think for so many of us, we struggle so many times wanting the stuff. We want the stuff. Give me the stuff I want. And when God doesn't, we get mad. When God doesn't meet our demands, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. 
See, do we want to save this life and all we can get and all we can gather and all we can accumulate and all the power we can have under our feet? Do we want to save it so that we can, we can just kind of bring it all around us and make the world revolve around us and make ourselves the narcissistic center of our own universe so that we can have everything about us? Do we want to save our lives or do we want to lose our lives to find the true life that Christ has for us? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to find his life will have to forfeit this life. Take up your cross daily. What good is it a man for what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? See, I hope you know this, we're, we're bodies with the spirit, that, that we have this body, this mortal body, but that we have this eternal spirit that is in us. Are we willing to, to sacrifice our eternal spirit for the world around us and what the world has to offer us? Are we willing to surrender and sacrifice our eternal spirit just so that, for the hope that we might get more stuff, we might get the life that we're dreaming of? Or will we instead sacrifice this life, this mortal life that we have, so that we can have the life that God is promising through his son, Jesus Christ? And this is a daily process. We need to deny ourselves daily and take up the cross. We have to deny ourselves, and this, this act of taking up the cross is the perfect illustration that Jesus uses because it is an act of humiliation. It is an act of walking humbly. I don't know if you've ever carried a cross. I've talked before how I've done that at times in my past on Halloween, and those are different stories for a different day, but carrying a cross is not easy. Carrying a cross is hard and painful. Are we gonna take up our cross daily? Are we gonna put to death this flesh, sacrifice it for the work that God has so that our eternal spirits can enjoy real life? So when we're secure in our identity, then we have confidence to walk in humility. This is why I think so many people walk with arrogance and pride is because they're insecure. They don't have the security to walk with humility. It takes security to walk with humility. When we walk humbly with our God, we realize God is God and I am not. That, that what God did and who God is is nothing I can ever be, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and this free gift of salvation that he has by nailing himself to it, then we can be covered in righteousness and it is because of that that we now have the life that we have, that it is all because of God. So how could we ever be proud? How could we ever come out of this place on a Sunday and go into a world that does not believe and walk in arrogance and pride because they don't know yet? How could we ever go to those who don't yet know Christ and, and shower down condemnation because we know Christ and they don't? Instead, we, we walk humbly with our God. We walk humbly. We take up our cross daily and we follow Jesus. Are we going to take up our cross or are we going to make much of ourselves? We have to put to death our selfish pursuits. We have to put to death our attempts at our own righteousness. Take up our cross and follow Jesus. When you're secure in your identity, you have confidence to walk in humility. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what life has thrown at you this week. I don't know the struggles that you faced. I know the week that I've had and the struggles that I faced, and I know that every week I need to be reminded that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And being a disciple, as we look at the lives of the disciples, we see that from the point of, of Jesus' resurrection on, after they received the power of the Holy Spirit, which we receive, by the way, when we are born into Christ, when we are born again, our spirits are reborn. We receive this rebirth of the spirit. The old is gone, the new has come, and we're now clothed in this new life, this new righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we have this new spirit alive and active and at work with us, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is doing its work, redeeming us, even redeeming our mortal flesh. But we have this free gift of God. That's what covers us in righteousness. That's what covers us 
and grace. It's not anything I can do. It's not anything I can earn. It's not anything I can be on my own strength. It is the power of the Holy Spirit alive and active and at work in me that redeems me to be able to, from this point on, in gratitude, walk humbly and live the life that I've been called to live. So who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? In just a minute, we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the band to come up. But just before we take communion, I want us to watch a short video that will show us who we are in Christ. And as, as we watch this video and then as the band sings a song, during the song, I invite you to come forward, take the elements, get the elements for communion, take them back. We'll take communion together after the song. But during the song, I would just, I would just invite you to allow God to do some searching, allow God to do some mining, allow God to dig a little bit, allow the Spirit to, to have His way in us for just a few minutes and reveal to us who we are. And maybe for some of us, we will need to see that we have been trying to secure our own identity. We've been trying to secure our own place in the kingdom by what we do and the lives that we live. And and that's something that we need to sacrifice and lay down and put at the foot of the cross and take up the cross that Jesus has called us to bear. For some of us, we have been beaten down and we have been wounded by this life and people in this life who have wounded us deeply. And for some of us, we'll have to lay that down. We'll have to surrender that to Christ and put that to death on the cross and take up the new life that Christ gives us, take on the new righteousness that we have in Jesus. For some of us, we'll have to lay down other things. We'll have struggles that we cling so tightly to. We'll have things of this life and of this world that we like just a little too much. During this time, I just invite you to allow God to search you, to know your most inner thoughts, and to see if there's any unrighteous way in us, and then reveal that to us. And then as we remember in communion what Jesus did, to once again this week see that we are not clothed in our own filthy rags of righteousness, but we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now God sees us through the lens of his son. He sees us as redeemed. He sees us as perfect. He sees us as his child. He sees us as wholly his because of what Jesus did. Even though he did not deserve the death, he died it for us. He died in our place. He carried his cross. Are we going to walk humbly carrying our cross?